and welcome back to the Drill to Detail podcast after the Easter break. And I'm your host, Mark Whitman. So one of the most popular episodes over the last two years we've had was with Mark Grover, one of the committers on the Apache Sentry and the Apache Spot open source projects, a contributor to Apache Spark, and co-author of the O'Reilly book, Hadoop Publication Architectures, along with Gwen Shapira from Confluent, who also came on the show back in 2017 to talk about Apache Kafka, streaming data pipelines, and of course her book. So back at the time, Mark worked at Cloudera, but has since then moved on to Lyft, and he's kindly agreed to come back on the show and tell us a bit about the technology he's using there right now, and some of the things he sees that the big data world hasn't solved yet, and where it might be headed. So, Mark, welcome back to the show, and uh, great to have you on here, and maybe just do a quick introduction and what you've been doing so far. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Yeah, it's great to be back here again. I am now a product manager at Lyft. Uh, Lyft is a big player in the ride-sharing space here in the U.S. and now in Canada as well. Like you said, I was previously an engineer at Cloudera, and over the past seven, eight years at various different companies, I've built and seen many different architectures with big data tools, and I've contributed and been a committer on many different projects in the open source uh, space for big data as well. I have a keen interest in sharing what I've seen in the larger data community through blog posts and books and podcasts. And that's exactly why I'm here. And I'm super excited to be here. That's great. Thanks, Mark. So just before we get into the detail of what you've been doing at Lyft, just tell us a bit about your involvement in the Apache Spark project. So you know, what interested you about that problem space and, and what was your contribution really to that project? Yeah, Spark uh, was quite the rage when it started. It uh, started as a replacement for MapReduce uh, for batch computes. So essentially you could do your ETL or any ad hoc batch compute in Spark. But then it opened up two new use cases with the same engine. It opened up a very popular streaming use case which allowed you to do near real-time processing with Spark streaming so you could do fraud detection or anomaly detection. And it opened up a machine learning use case so you could use the same engine to train and score models. Uh, it, it tried to open up a few other use cases around graph processing, but I, I would say at the high level, batch streaming and machine learning became the very common use cases of Spark. When I focused on Spark, I was mostly spending my energy around Spark streaming, so both contributing to the platform to make it more resilient, more secure, and so on, but helping a lot of organizations who were Cloudera customers to build near real-time applications. And there's a chapter in the Hadoop Application Architectures book uh, on fraud detection, for example, which is a total manifestation of the kind of work that people were doing with Spark Streaming and the kind of work I involved myself day to day with Spark Streaming. Excellent. So, so you moved on now from Cloudera and you've moved on to, to Lyft. Um, so what, in, what interested you about going into the ride sharing industry, obviously, albeit in a, an IT role, and Lyft in particular, to the point where you'd move from, say, a platform vendor to actually kind of working in a more focused role with a, a customer? Yeah, that's a great question. A question I spent a lot of time thinking about when I was thinking of this transition too. And I think there are two parts to it. One part is my changing of roles from an engineer to product manager. Uh, and then the second part is me changing companies. And by the way, this is all specific to me, right? So it's only my reflection of how I think about things. So let's talk about changing roles first, going from an engineer to a product manager. I think going to a product manager it, allow, it has allowed me to step back and think about what we need to build, how does it fit in the longer term vision, and why is it that we need to build it. And I got a lot of that independence as an engineer too, but it's even been more refreshing now to be a product manager and, and 
still be a still be thinking about execution, but at the same time, have a little more time to think strategically about what we need to build long-term and how does that map to short-term and why is it that we need to build it? So the second part of that was changing companies, which was like moving Cloudera to Lyft. And I I actually learned a lot from Cloudera and I definitely apply much of what I learned at Cloudera every day at my job at Lyft. And my decision to move to Lyft was a hard one, uh, but it was mostly around scaling my impact and being able to contribute end-to-end uh, in the life cycle of data at a company. So at Cloudera, I went uh, and helped a customer with like the big data platform. But here at Lyft, I'm not only contributing with a platform, but thinking about end-to-end things, like how do we make this platform the most productive platform? How do we make Lyft the most data-driven company in using this platform and things like that? Okay, so so I think it was I think it was Gwen Gwen Shapiro actually who wrote a good blog post a while ago about going from uh, going from an engineer to, to a product manager, and and it's an interesting I think it's an interesting transition, isn't it? You know, it, in terms of your focus and what you you know what you look at in terms of the longer term vision, as you say, and the value, but also I mean one of the things I found particularly uh, uh, un, unexpected about being a PM myself is the fact that you don't really have any um, I suppose direct line manage you know you don't manage people you don't have the ability to actually tell people what to do it's a lot through influence really isn't it it's more down to the the, the, the strength of your vision do you think that's the case uh, that is definitely the case yeah so there's a lot of influencing happening and you influence through data through uh, what the industry standards are looking to be what are the trends that are happening and it's a very interesting role Mm, excellent. Um, so, okay. So let's let's go into the what you're doing at, uh, at Lyft then. So, uh, and what, 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 so first, what does the technology platform look like there? You know, what kind of uh, what kind of tools do you use, or certainly what kind of uh, I suppose problems are you solving? You know, maybe start by walking us through the uh, the data platform that side of it, really. First of all, yeah, that sounds great. So to walk folks through the mission of Lyft is to improve people's life with the world's best transportation, which literally translates to have drivers offering ride and making money and have passengers uh, requesting those rides. The catch is all of this happen, all the drivers and the passengers have to be at the right place at the right time, right? So if we were to try to map this larger goal of Lyft to how data can help Lyft meet this goal, There are three big categories of users that data could serve and make more data-driven at Lyft, right? So the first category of users are analysts or data scientists. For example, if you wanted to see the growth of drivers and passengers on a per-region basis and be able to forecast how much we need to invest uh, and just do sort of business-related analytical decisions, that would be the first category of users. Long and short of that is analysts and data scientists. The second category of users is operations. So there may be a general manager of a particular region, let's say San Francisco, who wants to make sure that the drivers are correctly incentivized to drive at particular times of the day when, when, for example, a baseball game may have finished and that they have actionable insights from that. So not only do we show them the data around where the drivers should be, but we also give them recommendations. Hey, we recommend you deploy this particular incentive so drivers are then driving over to this area. Then the third category of users is experimenters. And all engineers in the company, all product managers in the company fall in this category, 
But these are users who can use the data platform to experiment with changes to the app and then decide based on data whether they want to do a full-on rollout or not. And when people think experimentation, they think, you know, changing button colors, but it can be much more nuanced too. You could test out a new pricing algorithm in a certain region with certain group of users and see if you want to roll that out to the entire region or the entire country. So to recap, the three kinds of users that the data platform at Lyft is serving are analysts slash data scientists. The second category is operations. And the third category is experimenters. Okay, so so imagine in that second category, you know, you've got the operational side. Um, you know, you're in a uniquely competitive situation because you know, a driver using, say, Lyft in their car, you know, the Lyft app would have other ride-sharing platforms there as well. And so you're you're competing against kind of other platforms they can go with. Um, and it's all kind of in a way you've got to make a decision now and then because uh, you know that's when the opportunity that's when the opportunity is to earn some money from getting a ride. You can't, you know, you've got to be on time as well. So you must have a uniquely competitive situation and an opportunity there to differentiate through analytics really absolutely uh, and actually that leads to an interesting point that I want to make and want to share I think when people think of data and using data to power organizations many times we only think of providing the data so let's use the example that you were using mark so a general manager has to see what is the state of the health of the drivers and passengers right now in the moment in the region right one way for for us to do that is to just provide data be like oh there's like a collection of passengers here that need rides and then there's a oversupply of drivers over in, over here in the other region but at this point all we have done is given them just the data and now ha they have to act upon this data and they have to figure out what they need to do in order to tackle that supply and demand difference in various different regions but imagine if we elevated this conversation to not just be providing data, but to be recommending actions, right? So take it one more level higher. So instead of saying, here's an extra supply in this region and here's some extra demand in this region, we say, based on some data and what you've done in the past, like learn essentially from, from what they've done in the past and actually recommend, here's an incentive that we recommend you deploy to these category of drivers, which will make hopefully like this percentage of drivers from this part of oversupply to the over demand area at the moment, right? So raising that level of conversation around actions instead of just data is something that we think about constantly. Okay, okay. And I suppose, I mean, other examples I've seen, I mean, one of your competitors has, uh, you know, it's a food delivery service as well. And, and, and that you could, you could imagine that the activity that has been seen uh, using a ride sharing app and, and, and the concentrations of people and people traveling to restaurants and so on, that maybe even prompted the idea of branching out into a different area, say things like food delivery or, or, or kind of logistics. And, you know, in the UK, we have a, um, a company called Deliveroo that, um, you know, it, it delivers food from restaurants into to houses. But actually now, they actually now, when they realize there's demand in an area where there's no restaurants, they actually now work with the restaurants to open like pop-up pop up shops in there so that they actually can tell the restaurants where to open additional branches, which is, which is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, that's crazy. I think there's a lot of... Uh room for improvement and a lot of work to do and a lot of impact in the space. Yeah, so let's get into a bit more technical stuff then. So let's go into uh, the kind of, I suppose the ETL and analytics use case. So, so what does the architecture look like there? I mean, do you use things like Kudu at, at all? I mean, what do you, what kind of platforms and, 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 and solutions do you have there? Yeah, great question. So for the ETL analytics use case, 
Um, I'll start from the very ingest side of things. So we have a custom ingest code that uh, either is used in your phone app. So every time you have some activity that's of interest, uh, we lock that. And then it, we also have instrumentation in our services. So the service, for example, that provides you the ETA or the pricing uh, also logs certain information about the ETA and the price it provides. So we have instrumentation in cell phones and in services. All this instrumentation flows through a custom logger to a message queue. And from the message queue, there's a streaming system that will take this data and put that into S3. From there on, we have um, SQL systems. So the three SQL systems that exist today, um, we have Redshift, we have Hive and Presto, which I put in the same category. Um, I'll explain later why. And then the third system is Druid. And from each of these three systems, we can connect various different tools for BI or analytics, and we use those tools to do that analysis. Okay, okay. So, I mean, all those names I recognize there, but they're not particularly names that I recognize from the Cloudera side. So how does that, how does that stack, you know, at each of the different levels there? How does that compare to what you were used to using? Ah. And, you know, maybe think to, maybe tell us about some of the pros and cons of why they've chose that. I mean, start maybe with the kind of storage layer, HDFS, and you mentioned S3 there. Yeah, that's a good question. So let's start again from, from the top there, from the ingest side. Uh, we have a custom collector at Cloudera side. Many times people use Flume. And I think it may just have been here a difference of, um, you know, when when this code was developed and the familiarity of the engineers with Flume and so on. I don't think this is a big difference. I think we, we're going to find other interesting, bigger differences as we go downstream here. So the next one is the pub subsystem. So at uh, Lyft, we use Kinesis and we are uh, investing in Kafka because of some limitations we have come through Kinesis. And I think that decision was, again, um, because of the heavy reliance of Lyft on AWS components, uh, especially on the operational software side and services side, so those services that serve ride-sharing. Um, and then Kinesis was an easier choice there. But I think we have run into some limitations of Kinesis that's making us go to Kafka. And Cloudera architectures are, are also using Kafka. So we are pretty convergent there. T tell and us about Kinesis. So tell me about Kinesis. I've heard of that, and, and but coming more from the, I suppose, the Google side and, and Cloudera, what is Kinesis really? How is it, you know, what is it trying to solve and, and, and describe it for us? Yeah, very good question. So Kinesis is similar to Kafka. It's a pub subsystem, message queue. Uh, you throw a bunch of producers on one side and have a bunch of consumers on the other side that read from it. So it's pretty competitive Cloudera, uh, sorry, to Kafka. And the I, I think to dive deep into the differences between Kinesis and Kafka, I think one limitation we're hitting is is a number of reads we can we can do on the consumer side of Kinesis, how that scales in comparison to Kafka. And we've seen Kafka scale better than Kinesis in that case. Okay, okay. So basically solving the same problem, but in your, in your experience so far, Kafka has been a more scalable solution for doing that. Absolutely. Great. Okay. So from there on, how do you get data consumed from Kafka into your analytics system? And there are different solutions to that. Even at Cloudera, uh, some folks used Flume and some folks used Spark Streaming. Outside of Cloudera, if you talk to Gwen, for example, at Confluent, they could have many users using Kafka Connect. At Lyft, we use Flink. And I think this is probably a part of ingestion pipeline that hasn't been super standardized right now. 
the reason being you could use, there are two sets of tools you could use here in order to do ingestion. First one is a dummy ingestion tool. It simply picks data, doesn't do a whole lot of transformation. It can do maybe in the context of an event, it may mask something or create a new record based on existing fields and uh, existing fields in the events, but it doesn't do, um, you know, larger windowing or anything more intelligent than that. Since that Fluent D. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that that category is similar to Flume and Kafka Connect, and that's one category of tools you can use. But then folks have started using richer, more heavier weight streaming systems in order to do stuff like this, right? So you could use Spark Streaming or Flink in order to do ingest and along, along the way, maybe you will change a few things here and there, right? Maybe you will do some windowing, maybe you'll do some deduplication in the context of that window and so on and so forth. And I think um, there's a fine line between deciding which one are you gonna use and that line is not clear uh, in general. And so I see more and more people using a larger heavyweight streaming system because of the flexibility it can offer in the long term. And between that, I think the choice between Spark Streaming and Flink is still, again, something that's not super standardized yet. And Lyft has investments in Flink and has a few Flink committers. And so that's why Lyft chose Flink. I think there are also a lot of technical differences between Spark Streaming and Flink when we get to the guts of it. Uh, but we will save that for another conversation later. Uh, and then, okay, so let's move on from there uh, and talk about analytical databases. So at uh, Lyft, I was saying we have Redshift, and then we have Hive and Presto, and then we have Druid. And Redshift is mostly a sign of historical uh, existence at Lyft. And we just and think of it as competitive Teradata or Nertiza, your old, you know, your heavy MVP, uh, MPP systems, pardon me. And that was essentially for easier setup, quick and dirty analysis back in the day. Uh, but these things stick, you know? And uh, the next system are, is Hive and Presto, and Cloudera architectures would be very similar. The only difference there would be it would be Presto versus Impala. And I, I do continue to see a lot of uh, contention between that. Airbnb, for example, uses Presto too, so does Lyft. And the third system, really quick, would be uh, we use Druid for our um, sort of cubing, really fast analytical store which connects to Superset, and in Cloudera space, that would be Kudu. And happy to dig into whichever ones you want to dig into, but yeah. that's the sort of differences. So, so that, I mean, there's a ton of stuff there that I'd be interested to talk to you about. Um, so, um, first of all, uh, no use of Drill. I mean, Drill, again, is one of those ones in the Presto kind of Impala space. You, you know, that's something you guys have looked at, or just it's just not one that you've chosen to use at all? Yeah, not one we've chosen to use. I think Impala versus Presto versus Drill is, yeah, is that yeah. category. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 looking at you mentioned about Druid versus Kudu there, and and so we actually had um, we actually had the uh, guys from Impala on the show a couple of weeks ago. Not Impala, sorry, from Imply, um, and actually one of the people behind kind of Druid was on on the show, and we're talking about it. And um, you know, I, I, Druid is kind of I think it's a fantastic product, and and it's got quite a high barrier to entry. I think as far as I'm concerned, in terms of getting data into it, and there's a lot of kind of manual management of of, of kind of servers and so on there. But the performance is super fast, and um, like you say, you can cube stuff, you can you can load, load data in an aggregate. I mean, what's your experience been like with Druid, and, and, and is it something you'd recommend using further, or, or, or what, really? Yeah, good question. And I actually, uh, I, did, I did see and listen to uh, Fanjin's talk yeah. around Druid. 
here at Drill to Detail, and mm -hmm. I really enjoy it. That's the best part of me for Drill to Detail. Is to <laughs> listen to all these amazing talks, mm -hmm. and I know Fungin personally, and oh. he he came by at Lyft as well to give a tech talk on mm -hmm. Druid and help mm -hmm. us understand how do we make this decision. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so first thing to note is like Druid and Kudu solve similar problems, but they aren't the same uh, ways of solving them. So an example is. Druid is a storage engine as well as execution engine. So you store your data and Druid will also do how you actually process your data. Well, Kudu is just a storage engine, which means if you have to process your data that's stored in Kudu, you have to have an ex execution engine or a processing engine with it. And the most commonly used engine is Impala, right? So when you're comparing Druid and Kudu, that's not quite apples to apples unless you compare Druid and Kudu plus Impala or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, what about um, what about? I mean, because I've been as a side, I've been trying to persuade people where I'm working now to consider um, Druid as a, as a as a universal front end for um, for lots and lots of say big data, but also using it for kind of like like you say things like um, superset for ad hoc queries and so on. I mean, have have you? I mean, with Druid, how well have you found that it handles both large amounts of data and and fast queries and 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 generally how much admin is involved in maintaining it? Really, yeah. So I don't have a whole lot of context into the admin. I don't. I have not seen it to be as uh, heavy as perhaps uh, you you may be suggesting. I think I think uh, Druid is obviously a newer product as compared to many other products in the ecosystem. So it's understandable to for it to be a little further earlier in the maturity curve. But I uh, I don't have any anecdotes or data to to prove that it's really uh, operation heavy. Uh, our experience has been really good. It's uh, it's very fast for analytical sort of, you know, here are my few dimensions that I want to group by, here's uh, some uh, attributes that I want to roll up to and aggregate and powering a dashboard or, uh, you know, a SQL or, or, you know, there's no SQL syntax in Druid today, but you could power a dashboard using the Druid syntax and have that be super interactive. And I think one of the main reasons you may ask, like, oh, you already have Presto. Others may have Impala. Like, why do we need yet another system engine in order to do this stuff? And I, I think uh, there are, so Impala and Presto, all these things, and Drill have SQL syntax that you use to query the system, right? So it supports on joins, and it has um, code, for example, that will spill to disk if your join is too big. Um, it's fast compared to Hive, but in many cases, it's not fast enough. In cases where you want to do simple aggregations and want to do group buys on a certain very small number of attributes, and you don't need the full power of SQL, there's room for much more interactive analysis. And that's the gap that Druid, for example, is trying to fill. Yeah, excellent. So, so um, and what about, um, and this might lead on to the next thing I want to talk about, which is the kind of ETL side, but what, what about things like uh, orchestration um, and workflow around around ETL? I mean, have you, have you tried things like, oh, Uzi is the obvious one, but have you looked at things like Airflow at all and, and those sort of things? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, at Lyft, uh, we use Airflow. I have seen outside of Cloudera, Airflow being a pretty popular orchestration tool. Uh, Uzi had become the standard uh, and is still used pretty heavily. Uh, before Uzi, there was Eskeban from LinkedIn, there was Luigi, uh, and so on. And I think all of these uh, 
mostly standardized to Uzi. And I think perhaps the only choice that folks have to now make is Airflow and Uzi. And I've been working with Airflow now, and I'm a big fan of Airflow, having used Uzi for a long time too. Okay, and that, that I think this is a great example here. We're talking a lot about all these kind of crazy words and Uzi and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And I, I guess what, what one thing I think I've found certainly in the last um, year and a half when I've been working on a customer site is is the things that we were obsessing about when you were at Cloudera and I was consulting was all these individual technologies and projects and so on. Um, but actually, you know, when you work on a customer site, and in particular with the industry now, it's a lot more about how do we solve more generic kind of problems around kind of things like ETL and so on i mean is this are you finding it's less about technology and more about kind of approaches now taking etl as an example oh my god 100 percent. yes uh, i think as the ecosystem is evolving first open source had this problem real bad because the barrier to entry for creating your own sql engine is very low right so you saw a lot of frameworks and engines pop up. So if we were to take the example of ETL, there was MapReduce, then came Spark, then came like Tez, and you could run Hive on Tez, or you could run maybe even Spark on Tez. I don't know how that fly, but then you could do Hive on Spark, and and now there's Flink, right? So there's a lot of initial conversation about this stuff. But as the ecosystem evolves, I think that conversation is becoming more and more standard. So then I see myself that less conversations are happening around what framework to use, but more conversations are now happening around, okay, I've chosen a framework, but how do I use this framework to be the most productive, most effective in my organization? And ETL is a good example of this. Um, and so um, I can also give an example of what an ETL workflow look like. And even if assuming you have standardized on a particular ETL engine, there's a whole slew of things that are still unresolved that an ETL developer has to do. Shall we talk about that, Mark? Yeah, so, so and, and actually, that's a, very, that's a very relevant thing to, to, to discussions I'm having at work at the moment, where you, know, you, you have uh, very, very uh, clever data engineers that are, are, are writing very, very, very kind of small pieces of, of code and, 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 and so on. But I suppose, in a way, how do they become more productive and how do they think about kind of like making them, you know, yeah, the productivity question. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, that's something I've been thinking a lot about. So let's say I'll, I'll use Lyft as an example, um, and I'll use an example that many are familiar with. Let's say you work at Lyft and you just want to do analysis on the number of Lyft rides that happen on a daily basis, right? So your boss comes to you, be like, can you provide me this analysis? So the first thing as an ETL developer you had to do is you had to first search which is the right table to use for rides. Right. There may be three or four different tables that may have rights in the name. You don't know when they were last updated. You don't know who owns them. If you have a question, which table do I use? And this is the problem of discovery, right? Discovering data and references. Okay, let's say you, somehow you figured out that this is a table that you should use for calculating number of rights in a day. Then you have to look at this data and have a, have a sense of what are the various columns? What is the profile of those columns? So if it's a string column, how many times does null appear as a percentage on a daily basis? If it's an int column, what are the min and max? What are the count distinct? How many different rows or different values does this column have? So you could perhaps do a count distinct and understand how much cost it's going to take. So this category of questions is profiling. So the first one is discovery. Once you have discovered, now you want to profile and understand the shape of the data. Now, once you have understand the shape of the data, 
you have to now go and develop your SQL query. Okay, and you're likely developing this in a fast iterative way in your local machine. Uh, and for this, it's important that even if the backing data set is a terabyte or a petabyte, that you have interactive response so you can develop your SQL query really fast. If you missed a semicolon or spelled the column name wrong, you get the results really quickly and you can move fast, right? So this is your iterative development phase. After this, you make your query go through some integration test. And this is usually a staging cluster where you may want to bake your query for a certain amount of time before you move it to production. You may also hook on a tool like Dr. Elephant to analyze the performance characteristics of this query and make sure that it's not consuming too much CPU and it just is a reliable query in general. And once it passes the test, you may promote it to production. So if we were to recap, there are these uh, five steps, I think. There's a discovery, prototyping, uh, iterative development, staging slash integration test, and productionalization which an ETL pipeline or an ETL developer has to go through when developing an ETL pipeline. And the point I'm trying to make here is if we ignore the first two steps, which is discovery and profiling, because they are big enough to talk about on their own and just focus on the last three steps, which is development, staging, and production. If you simply wrote a SQL statement, you would have to modify that SQL statement as it goes from development to staging to production. The reason being, in development, your test data set is probably an anonymized data set that's lying on your local machine that you're using to develop this. And it may not obviously be in the same location where your data is in production. If you're using in staging, maybe you're using a sampled down data set. So you only have one for every 100 records in the production data set. And you're doing that for just speed of execution, right? And this sampled data set may be actually in a different schema or a different place. And of course, in production, you have your data in the standard place. So within the context of each of these environments, data may be different. The kind of properties that you may set for the execution of this query may be different. And it's not good for you to modify this code as you move from one context to the other. So what we really need that's making these engineers unproductive is a more declarative, functional way of expressing the SQL statement. So your, this, this functional ETL would then decipher the scope it's in. It figures out, oh, I'm in the dev environment right now. And so I'm gonna substitute all these schema names to a particular local location that has been set for this anonymized data. Or, oh, I am in the staging scope and that I'm gonna change all these schemas to be the sampled data sets. And Max Boschman, the creator of Airflow and Superset also talks about this in a blog, blog post and I think that's the really productivity conversation and the tools that we need to build. It's not just about the frameworks anymore, but it's about like, here's the workflow of an ETL developer and here are the inefficiencies there today. What can we do in order to remove those inefficiencies? Okay. So, so, so interestingly, you know, if any of my kind of old, old fogey kind of friends who worked in kind of <laughs> Oracle data warehousing and, and ETL tools and so on years ago were listening to this, they would go, you've just described, you've just set out the requirements for an ETL tool. Um, and, 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 you know, talking, it's interesting, it's interesting how, how things, you know, how things go in a circle because, some of the things you picked up on then. So you see, you said things like template-driven or declarative de uh, def definition of uh, of kind of ETL flows. 
that then get translated into the actual kind of code. I mean, that, that is what tools like in my old days, you know, tools like Oracle Data Integrator would, would do, where, you know, you would have this kind of graphical, more kind of symbolic <coughs> sort of mapping of source to target, and then you could choose, for example, the actual, <coughs> excuse me, the actual language or, or the platform you're going to deploy to. And it might be in, say, sort of PySpark, or it might be in whatever. Um, and, and so that's what they would do. And, and, and so I suppose, you know, but I suppose the, why would, why is that kind of tool not used in a, in a, in a modern environment? I mean, that's a, that's probably an interesting question as well. I mean, I never hear of those tools ever being considered yeah. in, in, in a, in a place like Lyft, for example. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, I would say that many of these tools are reinventing the wheel, right? And much of that has been for good, right? So the invention of Hadoop and and the SQL systems and Airflow and all that, I think, have been great innovations. But there are things that were figured out. An example that you just used, Mark, was Oracle Data Integrator, that we don't have to like fully embody and have like a really bulky old school tool, but we definitely can learn from the best practices, especially around productivity and effectiveness uh, from the past, and incorporate some of them. Mm. in the newer ecosystem of big data. Tools. Yeah, it's interesting. I, th I think it's a classic thing. Of, I mean, I've got two teenage kids, and, and the one thing they never, <laughs> I, never thing they want to do is ever take advice from their dad about anything. So so it's one of those things where I, I suspect there's an element there where people have to find things out for themselves. And so, yeah. you know, they, I'm, not, I'm not putting yourself in that position, but it, it's, you know, sometimes it's, you, you want to discover things yourself rather than be kind of lectured by old people about, oh, nowadays we used to do this. But but certainly template-driven, I mean, we, we have, again, where I'm now, you know, we have a system where there's templates that generates SQL from a some closure script and so on, and and effectively they it's it's a rebuilding of a template ETL engine. Um, I guess the reasons they're not used in your sort of environments is. I'd imagine, you know, things like, I think the whole thing of having a graphical interface that you have to kind of step through things very kind of like, you know, in a certain way, yeah. uh, that just does not lend itself to being used in environments where people are used to using like GitHub and they're used to using kind of, uh, you know, code and all that. So I think there's a, yeah. there's a cultural difference there for a start. And a lot of these tools are based on Windows. And, and again, where I'm now, there isn't a single Windows laptop machine in the, in the building. So that, in yeah. a practical sense, doesn't help. Um, cost, the other thing... Yeah. The other thing there is also like the pricing slash open source yeah, thing. Yeah, like exactly. All all these new hipsters want open source tools, myself included, and yeah. I think the historical <laughs> tools are not open source. I, I, well, I think there's the open source and closed thing, but there's also just the cost. I mean, some you know, if you mm -hmm. think about if you think about the, the the cost of like a tool like Data Integrator, you know, you're talking kind of like you know, an average Oracle deal size used to be 100 grand. You know, you, you and nobody's ever going to spend that sort of money on something mm -hmm. that you'd rather build yourself anyway and learn from that process. So. Um, but there's, there's interesting things there. Another thing you said about was the deployment of code into different environments. So this thing about you know being able to deploy into uh, into into test or development. But one thing you did say then that I don't think was addressed by those old tools was the different way that you know if you're deploying into production, the database volume might be different, or or you know you might deploy different code into different environments because of the because of the I suppose the the size of it. Um, that that isn't taken care of, um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, in general, it, it sounds like what you're, you're you're putting forward there is is a is a is a kind of spec for an ETL tool, and it's interesting that you mentioned Maxim and, and Airflow because yeah, you know, I want it that tool deliberately stops at the point of being just a, you know maybe describe what Airflow is for people just in case people aren't aware of what it is, and 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 tell us what it involves and what problem it solves first of all. Yeah, Airflow is an orchestration tool, which is just a fancy term for being a really fancy cron job. 
So you can say, run this job at 9, and I have this other job that I would like to get run at 10, but it has a dependency on the 9 a.m. job. So please only run it either at 10 a.m. or whenever the dependency gets done. Okay, okay. And, and so, but again, that deliberately stops at a certain point. It's very much done in code. Um, it's not done graphically. Right. Um, but, you know, but, uh, one other question I wanted to ask you before we get on to, uh, you know, the, the next bit is why did, what, uh, it sounds like it's all on-premises uh, sort of uh, systems you've got. Did you think about maybe kind of make, you must have heard of obviously the whole serverless approach and things like Athena and BigQuery and, and things like that and Dataflow. Did you, are they being considered or, or, or not really? Yeah, so a lot of these systems were developed before all, all, all these serverless systems were the rage. Uh, these are on-prem system in the sense, like, let's take Airflow as an example. It's an on-prem system in the sense that it can be used on-premise, but we use it on the cloud. So, we, in fact, we don't, you know, we, we have a machine instead of machines on on, uh, on AWS that we use to, to, to host our Airflow instance. Uh, in terms of serverless, I think it's possibly something we're thinking about. Uh, it's not currently an important part of the architecture. Okay, and, and I suppose another reason we, we use that here is, is, is dealing with the kind of, I suppose, the, the auto-scaling side. So, you know, when, for example, in the States, it's a very busy time for ride-sharing, how do you handle that kind of scaling up and scaling down? Has that been a problem at all with things like Flink, or, or, or have you handled that really with the way you do things? Right. Uh, yeah, many of these pieces of software, like you're alluding to, uh, Flink has, like, scaling properties and... Uh, we have been able to handle the traffic with the current functionality of Flink. I, I haven't seen um, a lot of problems related to the, to the scaling. I do think the other factor here is cost, and that I have admittedly less visibility to because you may provision for the max capacity, but if you're not utilizing that max capacity all the time, then obviously you're paying the cost. So auto-scaling helps with both scaling for higher traffic but also lowering the cost when when there aren't uh, as many rides or requests. Okay. Okay. So, so what? Okay. So you've done the ETL side and you've put the data in. Um, how do you? How? What challenges do you face around kind of making that data available to people? And, and how do you handle? I suppose. Or what's the, What's your thoughts around the data discovery side of things, really? Yeah. And this is the first two parts of the ETL development workflow, right? So discovery and profiling. But as you point out. This is not just in the ETL development workflow, right? If you are an analyst who just wants to do some analysis, they also have to go through their data discovery exercise. So there are multiple different personas for data discovery. Um, we can focus just on the ETL development yeah, and the data yeah, the persona. Side, yeah. yeah. And so here, like I was saying before, like one has to figure out which tables to use. But the problem is even more compounded in larger organizations where you may not actually have just one database, right? So you may have some Oracle, some Teradata, some Kafka, some HBase, and of course some tables on S3 via Hive or part, um, Presto or Impala, something like that. And you may want to like learn all the attributes that we were talking about earlier, like what's the schema, when was the last updated, who's the owner, who are the most popular users, but you may also want to see, like, where actually is this table? Is this table in an HBase table? Is it a Grafana dashboard? Is it a Teradata table? And then you may also have organization-specific tags, right? We obviously can't predict uh, how an organization is structured, so you may have certain tables tagged as marketing tables. And being able to essentially have, like, a search engine uh, that becomes your single go-to place, like Google has become for us on the web, right? 
if this there you, there is a portal that becomes your single go-to place for finding all data. And so far, uh, we have talked only about the tables. But imagine if we raise that level and start talking about dashboards. So not only this search engine is indexing all the tables, but it's indexing all the dashboards, right? So when you search for a particular uh, thing like weather, it shows you all the dashboards that people have previously created by, uh, with weather, related to weather, ranked by their order of popularity. And it shows you some tables as well, and you can see which one you want to use. So that means that you can actually start reusing analysis instead of just figuring out what tables you need to use. Okay, so and that, that's that's interesting because I've, I, I, I um, there's a couple, there's a few points in there I want to drill into. Um, the profiling thing you talked about and how we can do that differently. But interestingly, that the search idea you said there, I think, is, 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 a, is a kind of interesting one. Um, and in fact, we've got another show coming up. I think it's probably going to be the one after yours. I've recorded already, which is uh, with, uh, with uh, Doug Budanara, I think it is, from ThoughtSpot. And ThoughtSpot's actual product is what you're saying there. You know, it's to say, let's use the the, the search interface as our way of uh, discovering the data that's in our in our in our environment. Um, can we use that not so much for the profiling side, but for the actual analytics side there, really? Um, and you know, we spent a good half an hour with him, try, him trying to actually describe effectively a empty search box, which was him describing the interface for his for his tool. You know, it just was you just type stuff in and, and you find things from there. Is that the sort of thing you're thinking of, really? That kind of idea. Right. Yes, I am. Um, but I think what's perhaps different here is what all information is being indexed, right? And so it's not just a particular kind of da dashboards. Uh, I think it's very common for folks to build search boxes within one tool. But what I'm really advocating for here is search boxes across multiple tools and at multiple levels, right? both at the table level as well as the dashboard level. Mm. So you're looking at the kind of lineage side and the provenance side as well, really. So um, you know, so where did this come from? How is it kind of loaded? Or, or even just finding things at, at a level beyond uh, the, the kind of things visible to the end user, really. Um, so, um, yeah. so the profiling side, I mean, pro profiling, again, you know, putting my old man hat on, you know, uh, these <laughs> ETL tools have had data profilers for, for a long time now, but you sort of like need to know what you're, you need to know what it is that you're, you're, you're profiling. It's a very expensive and time consuming process to do it. And, you know, one wonders if there are better ways we can do this now with the search and with the power of, uh, I suppose the things we've learned in the last few years to do that sort of better. I mean, so with the profiling side, how do you think that can be improved then, really? Yeah, um, I think there are a few technical ways that are super interesting around profiling. So I'll give you an example. Um, Parquet is a really common file format to use for storing your data. In fact, Lyft uses Parquet heavily. And Parquet already has some information in its footers around stats that are included in that particular row group, which is just a segment of data in Parquet. Um, so if you store your data in Parquet, you already have information, for example, in the file itself, in the footer of the file, around some stats like max, min, um, and so on. What that means is that the historical process of finding stats, for example, running a SQL query and then computing all these very heavy statistics on all the data you have, is now already in some ways available to you and it's already used for query optimization. That was the original goal for having these stats in Parquet footers. Can we leverage the same stats in order to actually make them available directly to the users and be, be visible to humans in order to make those stats, right? And so that's the kind of stuff that we haven't 
thought about and leveraging some of the existing technology and investments we have made in query optimization and bubbling them up to the end users in order to actually see the profile of the data in the same way a query optimizer would is uh, is exactly like an improvement uh, okay. that we could so what about what about you mentioned airflow again earlier on what about the kind of the the metadata that is provided in airflow how, how do you think that might help us with this sort of area yeah i think the metadata in airflow can be relevant sometimes for example airflow knows the delivery times of all tables so you could definitely and should definitely surface that in this one single system uh, there's also lineage metadata in airflow that you're referring to but i think lineage metadata is only available within dags and therefore it doesn't really map across dags and if you forgot to put a dependency um, let's say your SQL query actually depended on a few different tables, but in the DAG you forgot to express that dependency, that dependency is lost. Uh, one other kind of lineage information that's not available through just Airflow is lineage across systems or lineage uh, across like tables and dashboards. So if a dashboard uses a particular table, then that obviously is not available to Airflow. So Airflow has a very small legitimate view of dependencies but only within the context of tables not necessarily in the larger context of the of the usage across data okay so so i mean it's almost like you can imagine a, a kind of google search really for the data within your organization and, and and i suppose that'd be really quite valuable i mean have you seen that idea out there in the market at all is it something that that you think would be useful and you've seen it being used at companies yeah um i haven't seen a direct manifestation of that there are definitely attempts that have been uh, made along doing something similar. So there are there's a vendor elation that's fairly common used for data discovery, but uh, you know it's it's slightly different than what we've been talking about. Airbnb has a data portal. LinkedIn has Warehouse, which is open source. Uh, Facebook has an internal system called iData that's doing something similar. Netflix has MetaCAD again doing something similar. So lots of been attempts been made, but I I don't think any of them have reached. Uh, fully to that finish line in terms of what we were discussing so far. So, I mean, Mark, Mark it's been great speaking to you, um, you know, in, in, this, in this episode again. And, um, I mean, it, it's, it's also been great hearing, you know, what you're doing on a customer site now as opposed to sort of the in-cloud era. Um, so, you know, thank you very much for coming on the show. And um, how do people find out about you, really, Mark? Yeah, that's continued. I still speak at conferences. I still try to do blogs whenever I get a time. Uh, and I've been still really enjoying that. And it's always a pleasure being here at Drill to Detail and talking to you, Mark. So I'm really, really grateful for having you having me here and giving me a chance to share. That's great. And and your book that you wrote a while ago, just just maybe kind of like what's that called again? And and because that is such a <clears throat> the book itself is so uh, the bit that you the bit about the uh, architectures I found was so timeless. Really, you know, tell us about that again. How, where's what, what where was that published and how do people get hold of it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the book is called Hadoop Application Architectures. And even though the name suggests it's related to Hadoop, it's really big data architectures. And the book's divided into two parts. The first part talks about design decisions that one makes in general when storing and processing big data. Like, do you need to store them in a row format or a column format? Uh, what should your row keys look like if you're using something like an HBS or a Cassandra and so on and so forth. But I think what has become really popular amongst people is the last part. The second half of the book talks about these larger architectures, things like data warehousing using these big data tools or fraud detection using these big data tools or event analysis 
using uh, similar tools. And I think we put a lot of thought into um, how, what is the state of the art architecture for building a fraud detection system or building a data warehousing system. And that's become super popular. There were four co-authors for the book, uh, myself, Ted, Jonathan, and Gwen. Um, and uh, we're really glad with the response we've seen to the book and we still keep con getting great feedback and look forward to hearing more on how we can improve that knowledge share in the future. Yeah, I mean, I said to you, I think I said to you in the first episode I recorded with you that <clears throat> for my Oracle days, it reminded me of a Tom Kite book. You know, it was not only <laughs> how you do things, but it was why. And that, that for me was the thing that was really interesting. And that's why <clears throat> I originally approached you to come on the show then, because it was why do we do things and what is the rationale behind it? You know, that it was, that's quite rare in, in, in kind of big data books and, and so that for me was made it a book that I still refer to now actually so uh, I'd thoroughly recommend that so so Mark thank you very much for coming on the show it's been great to speak to you again and uh, take care and hopefully speak to you again at some point yeah thank you Mark really appreciate your time as well really enjoyed being here